Good day, America, and hello, world. Paul McLaughlin here on the subject matter that we discussed last week that we would be discussing this week, which is a major change from the branding and marketing effort that we discussed with the folks at Tipping Sprung last week. Getting China and India Right is the title of today's discussion to be held with Anil Gupta, who joins me here in Manhattan. Anil, welcome. Great to be here, Paul. Uh, the subtext of the, uh, the heading is strategies for leveraging the world's fastest growing economies for global advantage. A lot of big words, a big concept. Um, I can't get my arms around getting China right or India right. And I don't consider myself particularly parochial, but this is a daunting subject for somebody like me. So please, uh, please some forbearance in the discussion of the subject. I'd like this to make this very relevant to the people who are listeners to McLaughlin at Work, where we discuss management, leadership, and employment in the workplace. So it's uh, what you have written about has great relevance, but I'd ask you to simplify it, if you could. Indeed. Now, uh, I, when I was um, asking to uh, ensure that I made sure that I pronounced your name right, um, Anil Gupta, and you had offered that Gupta probably was not um, uh, appropriate for a, a, a talk show because of the meaning of the word. But give us a little bit about yes. your background yes. and, and what brought you and your co-author yes. uh, to write this book. Yeah. Uh, now, actually, I mean, just uh, talking about my name uh, is that uh, how actually it's a uh, uh, misfit that I'm doing a radio talk show because the name Gupta in Sanskrit means silent. So I'm not supposed to speak, and I don't think that works on a radio show. <laughs> <laughs> Silence is not, dead air is not something <laughs> we're looking for here. That's right. Yeah, so to um, uh, give you an idea about the, uh, the uh, genesis of this book, uh, that uh, my co-author was born, grew up, grew up in China, I was born and grew up in India. We both had our first two degrees from China and India, respectively. We also worked for two, three years in our respective countries. And her name? Yeah, her name is Haiyan Wang. Mm -hmm. And we have, both of us, been in the U.S. now for uh, over 20 years. So therefore, we understand uh, America. We understand the world of multinational companies. And what we try to do here is to uh, really integrate our insider knowledge, insider understanding and perspectives on China and India with an insider understanding of the West and of uh, uh, multinational companies and to say, you know, what does this China-India story mean uh, for multinational companies, for the strategies of uh, such companies going forward? So that's really what uh, we have tried to do in this book. And when you put the book together, obviously you and... Ms. Wang uh, knew of each other, or how did you two come together and then decide that you'd take two of the world's most populous nations, put them together in a, uh, a relatively thin, for the, for the topic of the book, uh, less than 240 pages, um, how did how did it happen? What was the the genesis of it? Well, I mean, there you're asking for our secrets, there, <laughs> right? <laughs> and now you can read it. Now you can go back to your Gupta yes. and decide. Exactly, right, right, right. right. Uh, and actually, what uh, uh, we don't say in the book, what I didn't say so far, is that actually uh, Haiyan Wang, my co-author, and I are married to each other. Excellent. No. Very good. And I was not clear, and I didn't yes. realize that. that was so therefore, good. you know the. Think China and India, not China or India, is a story that's playing out in our own, in our own personal in lives. Your lives. 
Huh. Uh, uh, and so it was very natural for us uh, to think of writing this book. And also, you know, uh, we do a lot of consulting work and research uh, on multinational companies. Right. And we had a sense that actually the majority of uh, multinational companies, that while they are present in China and India, uh, actually have hugely, s highly suboptimal strategies. Uh, you know, it's almost like Sears is present in retail, Microsoft is present in search, GM is present in autos. So being present in a market doesn't necessarily mean that you understand the market well or that you have uh, optimal strategies for those markets. And the same thing is true of many, many multinational companies that are present in China and India. Paul McLaughlin with Anil Gupta, getting China and India right, as Anil just said, his wife is the co-author, presumably in charge mainly of the China portion of the book. Interesting combination on many levels. And we hope to be able to engage Haiyan in our conversation, not at this time, but perhaps by telephone later in the interview, hopefully. In addition, I'd like to bring to your attention the visual modifications here as we move from an MP3 format. We add M4A, which allows us to add pictures as we have for the last month or so. Our sponsor, 24 Classroom 24-7, and that's classroom24-7.com if you want to learn further more about them. It's a leader in the field of e-learning. They provide demand distributed education, on-demand distributed education solutions designed specifically for institutions of higher learning, continuing education, and certification testing. Happy to have them aboard and happy to resume with Anil Gupta, Getting China and India Right. I have glanced at your book partly because I was so intimidated uh, by the concept and, and to some extent the language and trying to put it in perspective. I'd ask you to digress. Is it possible to give a, just a primer on, the, on India and China and whether they are, and I'm going to put it in the context of the euro, are they natural uh, affinities or are they like the Japanese and the Chinese? Are they like, give us a primer on where they mesh and where they don't, if one were to take an example of England, France, Germany, and Italy. Yeah. Start, start, start anywhere but yeah. educate me. Yeah. I think, you know, it's uh, fascinating that while uh, interaction uh, in terms of commerce, in terms of technology, in terms of religion, uh, that has been there between China and India for centuries. You know, it's like Buddhism, uh, the dominant religion in China, it came from India. Uh, and, uh, you know, so therefore there has been uh, integration or interaction between these two societies uh, for centuries. But actually, uh, uh, it's an interesting coincidence that leading aside interaction or interlinkages between these two societies that they have followed a highly parallel histories for parallel the last histories. Yes, for um, the last 2,000 years. Remind me of the geography. They do have a common border, uh, the, and, and it's quite extensive? Yes. In fact, uh, the, uh, the whole of northeast India and southwest China is a common border. In between, of course, you have Nepal, uh, Bhutan, uh, and so on, but the 
Boss junk but those are pockets. But those are pockets. And exactly. And how many miles, for the sake of those who who might not pass the geography test? Uh, I would say about a thousand about miles. About a thousand miles. Yes. Okay. So it's a huge common border between the two. And and with with mountain with mountain ranges though that have inhibited um, back and forth. Yeah, I mean the Himalayas. Yeah, so, right. Uh, exactly. But you don't don't look at that as like we know that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, gentle listener, Paul McLaughlin here, interrupting the discussion between Anil Gupta and myself to refresh my memory as to how the geography worked. And in fact, of course, Anil Gupta was correct. But one of the countries that used to be independent, I don't know the history all that well, was Tibet. And they are now a property, I guess is the way to put it, of China. And article in the New York Times a couple of days subsequent to the interview highlighted uh, China's concern about the politics in Tibet becoming more evident to the rest of the world and in fact has precluded journalists from entering Tibet from China so that the word does not leak out about uh, either the conditions there or to give them a platform to raise their political uh, issues. And to put that in perspective, let me quote from the article in the New York Times, and I quote, Tibetans widely resent Chinese rule, and Chinese leaders fear that Tibetans could seize on this month, the 50th anniversary of a failed uprising, to carry out a wave of protests similar to what took place a year ago. Part of the mission of the security forces is to evict foreigners so that whatever occurs will be kept hidden from the world. China and India are not like the United States, and we should keep that in mind as we listen to this learned discussion about getting China and India right. But that's yes. it's true. I mean, right, it's right, like right. the Rockies uh, for us, and, that's and, right. and like the Alps. We, that's we're right. much more familiar. That's right. That's we're much more familiar with Western so culture for trade. Napoleon going over the Alps that's than we right. are with that. That's right. That's right. So actually, sea trade uh, was the more prominent okay. route for commerce between the two countries. And Shanghai being one, certainly one of the yeah. main ports. That's right, exactly. But, you know, going back to the uh, point that I was making about parallel histories okay. is that other than economic historians, most people don't know that until only about 200 years back, early 19th century, China and India for the previous 2,000 years had been the two richest countries in the world, the two biggest economies in the world, and by the standards of those days, two of the most advanced technologically societies in the world. At the same time? At the same time. So that they didn't trade off. One was not the superior and one the inferior. No. Uh, and you know, it's, it's, it's kind of very interesting that in many ways, you know, like today when we think of China, we think of it, China is the factory of the world, and we think of India as the IT powerhouse. And in some ways, uh, some interesting ways, uh, those kind of differences existed long time back. So if we you know, look at what did China uh, over the last 2,000 years bring to the world, it's kind of hard things like paper, like printing, gunpowder, bronze, and of course, ceramics, China, you know, that we call. Whereas what India brought to the world was actually modern mathematics. Uh, so the concept of zero, uh, negative numbers, uh, unreal numbers, fractions, all of that, uh, 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 let's say mathematics, came from India. And so the India has uh, historically been, let's say, a more abstract thinking society. Uh -huh. uh, China has been a more practical society. 
uh, but they were you know just uh, the two richest economies and the two most advanced economies for 2000 years and then in the 19th century the industrial revolution you know which made europe rich america rich completely passed china and india by and it happened at the same time for uh, slightly different reasons but colonialism imperialism being a common factor mm -hmm. and then the while in 1820 china and india together were about 50% of the world's gdp by 1950 they were less than 10% hmm. and then china became independent in as a republic if you will you know communist uh, country right. in 1949 uh, india in 1947 that isn't that far apart no, that isn't you know and then in fact basically uh, both of them uh, went into hibernation economically then china started to open up in 1978 Uh, India opened up in 1991, uh, mm. 13 years later, and today uh, China and India are the two fastest-growing economies in the world. The they are both uh, in the top 10 to 12 economies, and by many projections uh, that uh, I believe in, my own analysis indicates that by 2025, China is likely to become the world's largest economy, and by 2040. India will become the second largest economy in the world so that by the time let's say if 30 years from now uh it will be China number 1 India number 2 and US number 3 roughly uh in that kind of a sequence so i think it's kind of remarkable parallels in the 2000 year history of China and India wow well that's uh, that's in 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 light a series of enlightening statements and i have a series of questions here related to it sort of piecemeal if you will uh number 1 in terms of population to 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 give us just a a broad metric if 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 i get it right i think this the united states is roughly 330 million 340 million people i think it's uh it's, it's, it's a little over 300 it's probably not 330 340 okay. but but so uh, slightly over, over 300 so, and and what is india and what is china china is uh, a little over 1.3 billion mm -hmm. india is uh, around 1.2 billion but so roughly roughly comparable roughly comparable and in fact china and india together are about 40% of the world's population okay and in terms of the uh religious uh leaving the politics i understand in terms of religious background and be the belief system um are they similar no the uh, china has always been a much more pragmatic society so if you look at the dominant philosophies uh, that have guided china over the centuries uh, confucianism taoism uh, uh, but neither confucianism nor taoism are really about nirvana about salvation uh, uh, of the soul if you will from they're not the, about eternity if you uh, will. they're not about eternity so taoism is about harmony with nature okay. uh, and confucianism Na nature here on earth nature here on earth well. uh, whereas confucianism is really about the relations within the society uh, between the boss and the subordinates between the elders and the youngers and so on so between the king and I, the if subjects if you will a caste system so, somewhat described somewhat described yeah. uh, that's right but uh, confucianism therefore is not about spirituality uh, it's about the society and the social system the so therefore the only uh, serious religion that china chinese society has known uh, is buddhism and that came to china from india so that was not an indigenous okay. religion mm -hmm. but even buddhism in 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 china 
because of the uh, deep-seated nature of Taoism and Confucianism thinking, Buddhism never became as deep-seated in China as, let's say, Hinduism is in India. Okay. And uh, also, China being a more pragmatic society, that Buddhism was adopted, uh, adopted and became, let's say, a more pragmatic mm -hmm. uh, uh, religion as practiced in China, uh, rather than, let's say, you know, because Buddhism, uh, as let's say, uh, with roots in Hinduism, you know, uh, that uh, the it's about salvation. Uh, it's about escaping the cycle of birth and rebirth. It's right. about the soul becoming one with God. Mm -hmm. uh, but that kind of let's say interpretation never really took root uh, uh, in regards to Buddhism in China. Mm -hmm. So, and, and when when did when did Buddhism find its way into China in in terms a, of your historical uh, perspective? I think. I may be off a little bit, but uh, not too much. Somewhere around the 5th, 6th, 7th century AD. Okay. So relatively recent given the societies. Relative. Yeah, still. I yeah. mean, of course, you're talking 1,300, 1,400 years back. Right. Mm. right. But, uh, but I'm also I'm always reminded, uh, and perhaps you have visited the uh, Museum of Natural History here in New York, in which they've got the history of, of, of creation, if you will, and mm. you walk down a very long path that's, uh, uh, for the sake of this discussion, maybe uh, um, 60 or 70 yards long, and humanity is in the last inch. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that. So when you and I are talking about 1,300 years yeah. or 1947, oh, that's right. <laughs> we're talking that's right. about the width that's of, a, right. of, a, uh, of a hangnail. That's <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in fact, you know, civilization... Uh, uh, is only it's less than ten thousand years old, right? You know, so that puts your book, getting China and India right, in perspective to some extent. Yeah, very a, a very tight perspective, and also your, um, you, you, the the practical nature of the Chinese mind. Um, obviously, we won't go into the relationship you have with your wife, but I imagine there must be certain manifestations of that in your family life. There's a, yes. there's a practical side. Yes. <laughs> and in the writing yes. of the book, I'm uh, sure exactly. a, we have to get this done exactly. as opposed to um, exactly. other uh, authorial right. uh, considerations. That's right. That, that, is, that is very, very true. You know, and, and also, I mean, and you know, two things, uh, they, uh, uh, let's say, get compounded here is, uh, number one, I'm from India. Uh, my wife, Haiyan, co-author, uh, she's from China. Uh, so uh, that's one. Second is that I'm a professor. She's a management consultant. Right. And so therefore, she accuses me of uh, living more in the world of ideas. Uh, yes. And she wants to live more in the world of money. Right. Uh, so I you know, understand. And, yeah. But she isn't here today. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> so I'm speaking with Anil Gupta. The uh, book is Getting China and India Right. Uh, Co-author uh, Haiyan Wang. Uh, they are also co-authors of The Quest for Global Dominance. Uh, here with uh, Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace. And just from the back of the, I will say it so he does not have to, Anil Gupta is the Ralph G. Ralph J. Tizer, Professor of Strategy and Organization at the Smith School of Business, University of Maryland at College Park, and his uh, colleague and co-author, um, Ms. Wang, is the managing partner of China in India Institute, a research and consulting organization in which she draws on her experience in China, Singapore, Europe, and the United States, and consults to companies and speaks at conferences on smart globalization in the age of China and India. I always remember the old uh, shibboleth that those who do, do, and those who 
can't do teach and those who can't do can't teach consult so we've got a stratification here that we don't need to go into in the absence of your uh, in the absence of your good wife um, let's uh, let's move the discussion from the uh, perspective of China and India and before we get down to some of the uh, very specific issues that might affect the audience what was the purpose of this book and for the audience and, and it is quite a dense read I mean one, one needs a certain platform to fully appreciate it um, wh what was the hypothesis and where does the book take you at the conclusion yeah uh, the the starting the basic premise is that China and India are the only two countries in the world where four game-changing realities are playing out at the same time. Uh, and each of them is compelling in its own right. The fact that all four are happening at the same time makes these uh, two economies, these two societies, uh, very important for the world uh, in terms of understanding how to engage with them for people. But, you know, we have written this book really for senior managers of companies. The And, and the four uh, game-changing realities that I was referring to, uh, number one is the size of the market and the growth rate. So these are mega markets with mega growth. The second reality is uh, that uh, they, uh, despite the size of the economy, are still two of the poorest countries in per capita terms in the world, which means that they have uh, extremely low uh, labor costs for both blue and white collar work, which makes them platforms uh, for global cost reduction. Number three is that China and India produced uh, the two highest, largest numbers of scientists and engineers uh, in the world every year, larger the, than the United States, and the numbers are growing, which means that China and India are also uh, rapidly becoming platforms uh, for innovation. You know, uh, GE, uh, one of its largest R&D centers in the world, is in Bangalore, uh, the second largest uh, and second most important R&D center for Microsoft is in Beijing. So uh, the, that's the third reality of China and India, which is innovation. And number four is that both China and India are uh, becoming and have become actually the springboards for the rise of a new generation of global competitors. You know, 20, 30 years ago, we saw the rise of Toyota, Sony, Nissan, Samsung, Hyundai uh, from uh, Japan and South Korea. And now we are witnessing the rise of companies such as Huawei, and Lenovo uh, and BYD from China and companies such as Tata Motors and Mahindra, Infosys, Wipro and others from India. So I think uh, the four stories, mega markets and micro uh, and, and, and uh, mega growth, number one. Number two, uh, platforms of global cost reduction. Number three, platforms for innovation. And number four, springboards for the rise of new competitors. And so these four stories are playing out at the same time in China and India. And that's what makes them important for people and companies to understand and engage with seriously. Uh, and that's, I, I appreciate the succinctness with which that is stated. Uh, I want to come back to each one of those as you uh, identify them and speak through each one briefly with you giving the head. But before we go to that, are we in a topical global economic storm or are some of the, and I always hesitate to ask a man of your erudition um, and with the heritage that you and your wife have behind you, but do you view 
what we are in the midst of now, not only here but globally, as being truly a, a fifth element, if you will, in the uh, plate shifts of the economy of the world? Or is this just a, a fire ring in this particular tree of life that we will get past? I think the, in terms of what's happening right now, uh, clearly the enormity of it cannot be understated or minimized. Uh, we know that this is the greatest recession that the world has seen since the Great Depression. And right now, I don't think too many people have visibility into how things will play out for the rest of this year or next year. Uh, so one has to keep one's fingers crossed and see what happens. But taking a broader perspective, let's say a five-year, ten-year perspective looking ahead, looking back, actually the if you look at the numbers for let's say the last quarter of 2008 for the whole of 2008 for the first two months of 2009 for the predictions uh, that IMF the World Bank and others are making for the rest of 2009 is that every economy has suffered uh, Euro US Europe Japan uh, and China and India have also suffered however despite all of the turmoil China and India still today are growing they are the only two of the 12 largest economies in the world that are still growing and growing at fairly decent rates, decent meaning 5% or higher. Uh, and so the, in the current, the current turmoil actually is accelerating the pace with which China and India close the gap uh, with other bigger economies like Japan and the U.S. So therefore, the long-term trend that has been going on for the last 20 plus years does not actually get reversed but only gets speeded up in the current economic situation which means that you know what we say in this book about these four game-changing realities they remain valid but are becoming even more valid with each let's say passing day right great Thank you. I like that passing day that makes it that makes it particularly topical on the heels of a uh, on the heels of a Dow reversal yesterday, and who knows what happens today, whether it's a bear market bounce or not. Um, the advantage of speaking to you uh, as a as a professor and a a, a a student, if you will, of history, did uh, was India or uh, China affected by the Great Depression, as you pointed out, the, the earlier one. The, the earlier the one, one that we consider, yes, the, yes, present company included, right, right, that we right. consider the uh, de depression. Did they see something of that? Uh, they saw uh, something of that, but of course, you know, the less developed you are and the less integrated you are with the global economy, the less you would be affected by it. Right. But you know, India suffered. India was part of the British Empire, and so if Britain suffers, every colony suffers, and right. India suffered. Uh, China at that time, again, you know, was uh, uh, there were the various concessions uh, that had been given to Western powers. And so therefore, and, you know, China still had uh, large trade with the rest of the world. And so as the rest of the world went into a funk, uh, it affected China, too. Right. And I guess uh, one would say a, um, a cheating way, and I was an English major, so I can cheat on history because I don't know what I'm talking about. But given the history that you just gave, it would strike me that the uh, the depression behind us and then World War II that the economies really began to emerge in the form in which they would then progress uh, after World War II. 47, 50, uh, a variety of things happened around the globe. So if, if it was a restart, if you will, the restart, the reset button was hit, it was hit after World War II. Is that a fair statement? 
it's a fair statement, but I would add a qualifier. Uh, the the and and the the part where the statement is entirely fair is that in India after 1947, when the Brits l left India, it right. became an independent country. Because you see, I mean, it's almost never the case that a col a a, a, uh, a ruler like Britain in the case of India would focus on the economic development of the colony. Uh, right. Okay. Sure. So that uh -huh. wasn't Britain's agenda. Right. Uh, and so for the first time... They were more into pillaging than to promoting. More or less. <laughs> right. I mean, in fact, many people... I can say that. You don't yeah. have to. <laughs> <laughs> many people say that India actually served as the cash cow for Britain's right. industrial revolution. Yeah. Uh, so the And so what India had after 1947 were that India's leaders now were committed uh, to the economic development of India for the first time in, let's say, two centuries. The same thing in China, that Mao, uh, when Mao took charge, uh -huh. the Communist Party took charge in 1949, uh, that you had, uh, uh, you know, leaders in China uh, that were seriously committed to economic development. So I think that is true in both countries. I would say, however, as a qualifier, that both Mao and Nehru, and Mao in the case of China, uh, Nehru in the case of India, were pretty misguided in terms of while they were committed to economic development of their countries, but they were pretty misguided. They were not economists. They didn't understand economic logic, uh, and they were misguided in terms of how to make economic development happen. Uh, and so Mao basically, you know, he, the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution were economic disasters in China. Uh, Nehru was a Fabian socialist, and he uh, really gave India, or his thinking, gave India the, the, west of the, the, the worst of the, let's say, communist ideology or socialist ideology and the worst of the capitalist ideology, you know, so uh, that uh, we had a lousy private sector and lousy state sector uh, in India. So I think both economies remain pretty hamstrung, notwithstanding the ambitions and the, uh, let's say, hopes uh, and commitment of uh, their political leaders. And so it was really from 1978 uh, that China started to get unshackled uh, 1991, that India started to get unshackled under new leaders. And I think it's fair to say in the, in the current environment that we here in America look back at the scar of the Vietnam War, um, uh, uh, whether it was JFK who got us involved or Lyndon Johnson or Nixon who got us out, that le leadership counts here and leadership counted um, back in those two vast continents. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, it, it, it can't be minimized what the role of leadership is, and in the current role now with President Obama, uh, often a, what people are projecting as a new agenda for this country, uh, perhaps uh, the political situation in both of these countries that you are referring to in your book about how to get China and India right, that leadership will emerge perhaps in a different way than it is now in order to, uh, to uh, continue the acceleration. Of the of the progress that you point out in your book, yeah, and and I think I mean you know even in the most democratic of societies, as long as we are talking about large societies, leaders will remain important. Uh, you know, leaders yes. clearly do not have limitless power. I mean, even dictators do not have limitless power, uh, but leaders matter. You know, they and, do. Uh, you know, as as exactly you rightly said that. It makes a difference to the U.S. whether you like it or not, and some people like it, some people don't like it. That today we have Obama as the leader in the U.S., and uh, you know, uh, just a few months back we had uh, two months back we had George Bush as the right. leader. Right. 
That's America. That's America. <laughs> um, I want to do one last question uh, relating specifically to your book about going forward in the current economy. Uh, and again, I want to um, uh, underscore that I'm speaking with Anil Gupta, who has been given a, uh, what I find a, a fascinating sort of global review of, of politics and spinning through time, 1,300, 1,400 years to bring us to the present make this uh, real uh, in the discussion for strategies uh, for leveraging the world's fastest growing economies for global advantage, and those are uh, China and India. I noticed in the book um, one of those bullets that catches one's eye where they're talking about globalization of the corporate mindset, and you quote from uh, Harry Warner, the founder of, uh, of Warner Brothers in 27, who the hell wants to hear actors talk, and of course talkies were the we're the, the, the part of the day. Now we have American Idol, and all we do is sing and, and applaud and use the telephone to, uh, to vote them in or out. Uh, Watson in 43, um, I think there's a world market for maybe five computers. Uh, Ken Olson, digital equipment in 77. There's no reason for any individuals to have a computer in their home. Seth Godin, in, uh, one of the Internet marketing experts in 2003, that Google was a terrific Google was a terrific search service, not the foundation for a great business. And you say, what is going on here? These are really, and I'm quoting from the book, what is going on here? These are really smart people. The problem is that, like Harry Warner, they were looking at the future f from the lens of the past. Uh, in the Coming out of the depression, and I'll call it that, that we're in, is the leadership looking at the future with the same lens so that the next 10 to 15 years are going to be colored by the lens of the past, uh, whether it's Geithner or Paulson or economic advisors around the world, G7, whether they have such a, uh, they are only students of the rearview mirror, and therefore the things that you would project as you wrote the book prior to the meltdown, presumably, um, whether that is uh, affected by this same quote of, uh, and I'll call it legacy thinking. Uh, how do we break the shackles of legacy thinking to move into 2010 and beyond? Yeah, I think that the, uh, the uh, you know, the, the, the one of the most important things to understand is that the days of U.S. being the sole power are essentially r gone or they are rapidly vanishing. The, you know, of course, Europe is behaving in a more and more integrated fashion, and you know, EU Maybe, is that may come apart. <laughs> that it, it, uh, it may come apart, and we have to see, but you know, I mean, it's, it's an economic block that's right. nearly as And it has a, current, a common currency, it whether they a, like it or not. That's right, that's right. You know, so, uh, but then, you know, we look ahead, and you know, imagine the world in 2040, that in 2040, 80% of the world's GDP will be accounted for by four economic blocks, roughly equal. And so somewhere between 15 to 25% for each economic block. U.S., China, Europe, and India. And then the remaining 20% of the GDP will be all of the other countries combined. And in that, I include Japan, Russia, Brazil, and other economies. Do, do you consider the uh, Arab, Arab Aram, uh, the Emirates and the and the Arab League part of that? Part of that. Okay, that's right. Exactly. You know, which means that we are we are talking about a world where you know, if you look at go back to 1950, that in 1950, U.S. Uh, economically reigned 
far, you know, it was supreme. It was like 35% of the world's GDP. And no other country came even close. Uh, and U Europe didn't exist as a single entity. Russia was, you know, in terms of military and nuclear power, was getting strong. Uh, but economically, Russia was never uh, a big power over the last 100 years. And so, so I think we are now uh, uh, in a multipolar world. And in a multipolar world where market size, uh, technologies, uh, new ideas uh, can actually come not just from the U.S. and go out, but can come from Europe. Of course, that is a long, you know, well-known story, but they can come from China and India, that we need to, let's say, accept this new reality. And, and give you an, as an example of how uh, the uh, legacy thinking, you know, like Harry Warner's kind of thinking uh, can get in the way of companies, for instance, take Motorola. That uh, Motorola, we know, as a company is in deep trouble right now. The When you go back, to, you know, about 15 years back, uh, Motorola was the number one in China and the number one in India. Uh, and, you know, today... Uh, they have number one in terms of goods produced... Uh, number one number in Number one in terms of market share. Okay. Okay, number one in terms of market share, of course, you know, it's still the early days of cell phones, so you had pagers. So, for, for instance, Motorola Fine. was number one in pagers in India, and Motorola was one of the earliest ones to be given permission by the Chinese government to set up a 100% owned subsidiary uh, in that country. I wonder how many of our listeners who are under 25 know what a pager was. <laughs> yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> It was something world. that was used in the Stone Age. Where you and I grew up. <laughs> as a paperweight. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now the, an uh, artifact. Right, yeah. right, right. And so, but now, you know, as I was talking sometime back to a senior person in Motorola, China, one year before the iPhone was introduced, was launched in the U.S. by Apple, Motorola China had launched within the Chinese market a cell phone called Ming that was designed in China for China that had touchscreen interface and that recognized Mandarin handwriting. Motorola China, according to my interviews, pushed that technology and ideas with their with the US corporate headquarters and they in fact pushed hard uh, the idea that that technology could be brought to the US. But the as I was told, is that the thinking within Motorola de facto was, nobody would, of course, say that explicitly, but in terms of behavior, in terms of mindset, the thinking was, you know what, leading-edge R&D work is done in the U.S., and then we bring it to emerging markets. Right, a and even the way to pick you up on your language, even by saying the thinking in Motorola brings me back to Indiana or wherever they were. It was not a global think about what they ought to be doing. It was headquarters, wherever right. that is. From right. I think it's in That's the middle right. of the country somewhere. That. But it was not as if there was input that there was a global communications in which there was a global strategy. Yeah. The, or it was exported from the U.S. That's and we right. don't need to have it re-engineered right. to come back right. into us. That's right. Essentially, so so if you look, if you take a legacy mindset, a legacy right. mindset would say that you know what, all the leading edge products and technologies and business models are invented in the US. And then when we go to China and India, we take these products and services and 
technologies and business models, and we say, how can we make money, right? That kind of a thinking says that China and India are, let's say, two additional nodes, let's say peripheral nodes in the global network. Whereas the given the size of these economies, given where they are headed, the kind of thinking that's needed is not to think of China and India as two nodes in the network, but really two of the global hubs, the way we think of Europe as a global hub and right. not as a peripheral node. Paul McLaughlin here with Anil Gupta. Now perhaps might be as reasonable a time as any to introduce Haiyan Wang, his wife and co-author of Getting China and India Right, into our conversation. So without further ado, as we heard from her co-author Anil Gupta, she represents, not surprisingly, the Chinese side of the equation. A couple of things that, uh, if I may, uh, Haiyan, is to is to talk about three very specific issues. If I understand correctly, you are an economist, are you? Uh, not really. My background has been more in uh, business, business management, uh, both as an industry executive as well as a, a management consultant. I'd like to start with an element about the current state of the world, and I mean the world. How are we, how is the world going to accomplish the change that it theoretically needs to accomplish if we have in place so much legacy thinking. But what is going to be, if there is a new world order, and perhaps you can comment whether in your opinion there is going to be a new world order, what is going to be the mindset that's going to make it happen? Oh, that, that's, a, that's a very, very big question. I, I can, I, in some extent, I think that there is going to be a new world order, and I think that it's going to be more less uh, single polar as uh, as uh, currently U.S. is the dominant economy and is the most powerful polar. It's going to shift more towards a multi-polar world where U.S. is, of course, a polar, and then you have EU and definitely China and and uh, India, and then and then. Um, Japan there and in the rest of the rest of the world. I mean, if you, I, I believe very firmly that by uh, 2025, that China's uh, economy is going to catch up with that of the U.S. even under very conservative assumptions. Okay. And uh, and India will catch up. Uh, you know, will be following the same trend. And and if you project, and we we can go into details about that. Then if you can project further, uh, 25 years from 2025 by 2050, very likely that China's economy is going to be twice the size of that of the U.S. Meaning that by 2050, the combined GDP of China and India could be equivalent equivalent to that of the U.S. Japan and EU combined. So, the so particularly given the current economic economic downturn, and I think that China and India will accelerate the closing of the gap between them and the developed world. And and that is that is right now is a tw- 2008 to two, 2010 is probably a turning point. And from all the signs that I have been watching, that what the Chinese and the Indians are doing, they seem to have the the confidence that they will catch up faster and and uh, 
if you look at the stimulus package, the, particularly in China, and they're putting together, it's both to cure the current slowdown, but also there are a lot of great ingredients to position themselves for, for growth, for catching up. Um, and um, in terms of the mindset, I think that uh, from the ground over there in China and India, there's a, there is a growing confidence of, of, uh, of their destiny and their places in the world, and, and many of them just think that this is, uh, this is a reemergence. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it's kind of a cycle back to where they were back in, um, in, um, before 19th, um, it, by the beginning of the 19th century, the two economies accounted for uh, 50% of the world's uh, GDP is uh, being such large countries, and, and, and I think then there is a growing level of confidence in that, that their places in the world will be back to where they used to be. How do you blend in the issues of dominance with a world that is, if not global, at least seemingly getting smaller? In a multipolar world, it's more of a, it's more of a horizontal world. It's a world of, in a way, it's more democratic. You have to learn to coordinate, uh, to to collaborate, to not to neither. No country can dom- can have can have the most dominant voice. Collaboration and coordination and cooperation would be the key. Let me take that and make it on a a more personal level. Mm. When you look at your children at age 32, from Chinese extraction 25 years from now, yes. would you expect them to be truly citizens of two parts of the world, or will America still be the place that you came to for your future, um, and presumably is the place that you will spend most of your time? I, I think that the world they are going to be living in, competing in, will be very, very different from the world that I have come from. Uh, when I was growing up, U.S. is the place, and uh, U.S. is the place for opportunities, for learning, for ideas. And uh, and uh, when they grow up, uh, they cannot assume that just because they are Americans, then that they are going to be better and smarter and uh, have a have a better, even having a better living standard. It's amazing that when I took them back to China several years back versus just last year, and immediately. Uh, we, I remember we landed in, in Beijing in the Great Wall Hotel, and they opened the curtains, and uh, one of the twins said, wow, China has changed. And then the other twin said, wow, China is rich. Where does the money come from? Would you point to the, uh, the Olympics in China as being one of the turning points? I wouldn't call it a turning point, but, but again, that, uh, you know, the index of confidence has risen. I mean, I can't map it out, but if you, you can somehow map it out, that index of confidence, I think there is, there is, a, there is a jump. And okay. then it also changes the perceptions of the outside world, and there is a, a growing, growing interest in visiting China and in, in seeing what China has, uh, you know, has accomplished. And I was just with in India uh, a, a week ago, and every Indian executive uh, that I've met with, and they would say, when we visit China, our minds were blown away. I'm speaking to one of the co-authors, mm. Hai Yen Wang. What would you like to take away be, and, and more for the people of my audience, in, in a relatively thin book, you're asking us to get it right. Mm. What, what's the takeaway? I think the takeaway is that uh, 
is first of all that China India matters a lot. That uh, that uh, they are not uh, peripheral. Uh, if for for business people, they're for their business. That um, that for most of the companies in most of the industries, that playing just to understand China and India, what that holds as opportunities for them is it's extremely relevant. They are not remote. They are very central to uh, global to companies' global strategies. In my own industry. Uh, are my customers, are my suppliers, are my competitors likely to be bought uh, by those uh, new Chinese um, and Indian companies? And, and if so, you know, how that's going to change the industry structure. Has in fact already bought an enormous amount of the American debt, and therefore it is in fact purchasing the United yes. States. Yes, one trillion, <laughs> one trillion, and it is uh, yeah. It, that, you know, back to the very first question, you said this uh, this uh, economic order, and and how it's a it's a, a delicate dance that uh, that uh, that um, that China is financing the U.S. stimulus, and that one trillion dollars is in U.S. Treasury bills, and uh, and uh, and U.S. is going to have to probably put in more uh, debt. To, to dig itself out of the uh, out of the crisis, and and uh, is looking for China to buy more treasury bills. And China, on the, on the other hand, uh, I, I guess uh, they cannot they they they, they cannot just uh, stop buying, and because they have to make sure that the U.S. economy is uh, growing again, so that this uh, still the largest market is still buying the Chinese products. <laughs> right. As a final question, and I'm very grateful for your time because it adds a, a nice balance. Do you anticipate for your children now uh, under 10 years old, in 25 years, will the world be a better place? Uh, will the world be a better place? Well, in, in general, I think the world will be a better place. I think that by then, there would definitely... Um, um, I'm talking about worldwide, much right. bigger, bigger, bigger uh, middle class. Uh, there okay. will be less poverty, and uh, and uh, and I'm hoping that this this whole drive for economic development in every corner of the world is going to lead to a more peaceful, more democratic world, and that that t t tends to happen when there's less poverty, there when there is a a bigger middle class. For individuals, where holds the most growth opportunities, whether it's in China or in India or here in the United States or in Europe, you know that I, I don't know. I guess it's it's less important. It's, it's just like for companies, national identity is less important. You know, for IBM, is it an American company or Chinese company or Indian companies? It's hard to say. You know, if you look at their core businesses, it's it's uh, it's uh, everywhere. Yep. And uh, and for individuals too, uh, your national identity becomes less critical. If there's less poverty, if there is more peace, a uh, growing middle class, I would define that to be a better better workplace. Also, looking at all of the measures taken here in the U.S there in China and, and elsewhere, this growing sense of urgency to do something about environmental pollution, that everything we do from energy resources, from, from, from uh, reducing pollution, and there is, there is a sense of urgency there, and that is very encouraging. If, if, if that gets tackled, 
definitely the world is a better living place. Mm. Uh, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your uh, insights. I hope that uh, that uh, that I offered some perspective that are useful. Well, let, let's put it this way: if you were not a co-author, we'd be talking about just getting India right. <laughs> And that's not right. And that's, and that's not fair. <laughs> and that's not fair. <laughs> Hai Yan Wang, uh, co-author of uh, Getting China and India Right, combination with uh, the comments and discussion with Anil Gupta made for very interesting listening, and I can only hope that you two are correct. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much, Hai Yan. And now back to you, Anil, and a couple of final thoughts perhaps uh, as we address the difference between the American psyche and that of China and India as we try and get it right. Is there something in, and, and you would be a, a student of that, is there something yes. different in the American psyche than what we find in India or China that you would anticipate that that, that would continue? I think you I said think, that in some I think way. I think as an entrepreneurial society, I would say that culturally, uh, America is indeed ahead of India and China. Although, looking at all countries in the world, you know, from a global lens, I would put U.S., India, and China as relatively close to each other. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, despite the, let's say, a communist system of government in China, the Chinese actually are individualists. And Indians are individualists. You know, China is very different culturally from Japan. That... You know, in fact, uh, there's an anthropologist friend of mine, a Japanese, and uh, he made a comment to me. We were having dinner in 1989. He made a fascinating observation. And and coming from a Japanese anthropologist, uh, it had a certain a ring of credibility, mm -hmm. you know. And he said, you know, isn't it interesting that in China you have capitalists working in a communist system, and in Japan you have communists working in a capitalist system, you know. And that was a statement, really, about the cultures of the two countries. You know, Jap Japanese are far more, let's say, in terms of the group that matters, far more than the individual. In China, the individual uh, uh, treats himself or herself as, you know, far more important than the group. Right. Uh, so uh, Chinese are individualists, Indians are individualists, Americans clearly are individualists. So I think they are not that far apart, but there is a difference in the sense that within China and India historically, historically, uh, that uh, when people graduate from college and they're saying, okay, you know, what do I want to be? Uh, that in terms of status, job title, how many people are reporting to you are still viewed as, let's say, important. Right. Whereas in the U.S., uh, job title and status and how many people are reporting to you uh, doesn't really matter. You know, uh, you could be an entrepreneur in a garage, and as long as what you are doing has great potential, right. you don't care, uh, you know, that uh, what your job title is or that you're not the general manager of a business unit in a large company. Uh, so I think there are differences. It is said that in the U.S. what you do is important. In Europe, it is more important who you are. Where would you take that to India and China? I think in both... India and China at present, who you know <laughs> is quite important. And from speaking with uh, Haiyan, I understand you have two 
uh, twin daughters who are seven years old. So how is the world that they are going to inherit? How do you prepare them for that? I think the uh, the single most important, I would say, yeah, of course, you know, knowing Mandarin is important. Right. And will become language, more important. Language. Language. Like but we are dealing here yes. very much in the voice and the language of commerce, which That's maybe right. is going to be lost into computer. But, but people are still going to interact, and that's the fabric of relationships. That's right. So while language is important and Mandarin is an important language, I, I would say even more important than language uh, for young people is to understand these societies understand their history, their cultures, their politics, their economy, uh, and to understand. Because, you see, uh, while Americans, or many Americans, or other people in the world, are trying to become better in Mandarin, Chinese are learning English. And I think it's fair to say that Chinese will become better in English at a faster pace than, say, Americans will become good in Mandarin. And learning about these societies uh, is much easier than learning the language of uh, the, okay. the, the, the languages of these two countries. So I would say that's number one. Is, yep. uh, number two is that it's one thing to learn about China and India by reading another, or let's say by watching videos or uh, you know, other means, but really you need to visit, you need to spend time. Yes. And obviously that's much easier done at a younger age. Uh, you know, go do an internship, you know, go do a year abroad when you're in college observe. where you can and observe. observe. That's right. And where you're not afraid to make mistakes, you know, because it's a very low-risk environment, you know. Right. I mean, by the time you're the senior executive of a company and then you're sent to China or India, uh, then, you know, of course, uh, you could make mistakes and, you know, you you probably uh, make mistakes and you'd learn from them. But when you're in college or as a young person, uh, the mistakes are relatively harmless. Right. And that's a great time to make friendships, a uh, great time to absorb the culture. That's what I would say people need to do. In the mindset of the young intellectuals in India and China, do you think they have a different time horizon than Americans? Probably not, because the when we talk about individuals, young individuals on the streets of Shanghai or Mumbai or Delhi, that they are thinking about tomorrow. You know, they're not thinking about ten years from now or twenty years from now, uh, because essentially the economic growth in both countries is uh, very high. And so young people are thinking about really, you know, how can I uh, jack up my salary next year uh, by 20%? Because, see, there is a shortage of professional talent. And you'll go up to how we could go on and on. The subject is fascinating. The numbers of people are enormous. The landmass is larger. But we have to go. But I appreciate very much uh, your sharing your thoughts of history and language and uh, peoples that really gave uh, the, the, the stuff of, of getting China and India right. If you don't get the people right, you're never going to get China and India absolutely, right. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and uh, Paul, it's been a pleasure to be here with you and you know, to uh, go uh, a little bit deeper uh, and beyond the book in terms of uh, what's happening in China and India and what it means uh, for us in America. Good luck to all of us. Thank you. Paul McLaughlin with Anil Gupta, the book, Getting China and India Right, Strategies for Leveraging the World's Fastest Growing Economies for Global Advantage. Our thanks to Anil Gupta and his wife and co-author, Haiyan Wang. Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk, your audio guide to the workplace. And let us not forget our sponsor here on McLaughlin at Work. 
Classroom uh, 24-7. You can be in touch with them at classroom24-7.com. They provide innovative, on-demand, distributed education solutions designed specifically for institutions of higher learning, continuing education, and certification testing. They have a rich media-based format that blends the time-honored strengths of the traditional classroom lecture, and here's the important part, with the power of web-based learning. Not surprising that you'd hear them here on McLaughlin at Work. Put them to work for you. That's classroom24-7.com. And next week on McLaughlin at Work, Earth, the sequel. Discussion with Miriam Horn, co-author with Fred Krupp who's the president of the Environmental Defense Fund, The Race to Reinvent Energy and Stop Global Warming. The book is, has been re-released in paperback and appeared as a documentary on the Discovery Channel a couple of times in the last couple of weeks, and you'll be able to see it in the future. Miriam Horn, next week. Earth, the sequel. McLaughlin at work. Paul McLaughlin, your host. Wouldn't be a show without you listening. Thanks for being there. Talk to you again next week.